Okay, so here's the deal. For years, for years, I referred to Scott Thompson as an R2-D2 unit, a Swiss Army knife, and the Jupiter to our solar system as a church. And that last one in particular matters because I don't know if you realize what Jupiter does in the solar system is it just keeps going around the sun and it sweeps up all the loose debris that nobody else realizes. And Scott is that dude, all right? And so give him a hand. That's what I'm going toward first. He is very much that guy. And so going into the season, there is that part of me that goes, I don't know what I don't know. And we're going to find out, right? Um, and, and as you're praying for him in all these other ways, here's the one that I know for sure about Scott. The guy's got so much bandwidth. My concern is always he will still want to do everything full-time at a part-time level because that's just that guy, right? So, uh, man, he's still with us. He's doing a ton. He, like you said, he subbed out some stuff. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be learning all the things that we sometimes don't realize that Pastor Scott does. And here's my encouragement to every one of us as our ownership of a church. When you see something where you go, hey, there's a new gap I didn't anticipate, you can fill the gap. That's awesome. All right, so that's what we're going to do. It's going to be awesome. But, boy, excited for him as he's doing this and excited that he's still in our ranks doing stuff here. So good stuff all the way around as we get ready for the next leg of our journey. Now, you can tell today, class is in session. Big old fat, thick book there we're going to be looking at. But uh, it has a reference, and you'll see it here in a little bit. But it was interesting. Uh, over the weekend, I was down at the Hub, and uh, I was just kind of walking the lot. I was wandering the timbers. I was starting to kind of wonder and work through. Uh, there is a Sunday coming that will be our first Sunday, right? It's going to be this awesome inauguration. We're already talking about it, doing like multiple services to fit everybody in because it's going to be all this stuff. And so I was just trying to work through like, what's the message that I want to share on that Sunday? What's the thing that I want to anchor for all of us as we begin this next new leg of our journey? And then it made me realize that's exactly what we see Moses doing at this particular occasion in the book of Deuteronomy. And so we've been going through Deuteronomy, kind of lightning speed and everything else, but now it's getting to a point where he is thinking through, hey, there is a ribbon cutting coming for the nation of Israel. They're moving into the new Eden, and there's going to be a need for this single initial inaugural event to kind of anchor all the ideas so that they can then be everything that God wants them to be. They can actually lean into their purpose. Now, in this, you've got to think in terms of the humanness of the story, because Moses knows um, he's not going to be entering into new Eden with them. He is cut off from that privilege. So this is kind of like the last words that he has for the entire population, and he just wants to set them up for success. So he wants to say some things that embed into their mind and into their heart the things that God says, this is going to count for you. And so he's giving them his third and final speech of the book, and it all comes down to life and death. Or another theme we'll hear today is blessing and cursing. I'll talk a lot about flourishing and decay. Because that's going to be the heartbeat behind everything he's doing. And he wants to make sure that they really get it. And when it comes down to this idea of life and death, I don't want you to just simply reduce it down to, like, mortality. No, what he's actually trying to get at is, hey, I want you to have a quality of life as well as a longevity so that what God has called you to do and most wants you to do, you can do in the most effective and faithful way possible. And so this last bit is all about kind of, again, anchoring those ideas. 
Now with that, if you would like to follow along today, we have an app, and in the app there are notes. You can fill those out. Lots of verses today. We're covering a lot of ground in a short amount of time, but you can fill that out. But I also want to pray for us. Because today, like I said, it's a little textbooky. Uh, we're going to have to kind of get into the weeds on a couple of ideas that if we don't, we'll misread Deuteronomy. But I think in that, it also gives us a sense of how this matters for us today and how I can still kind of import these things into my thinking perspective in life. And so let's go ahead and pray right now, get ourselves settled, and then we'll just jump right into it. Jesus, I thank you that what I see in your message repeatedly is that you came to give us radical, abundant, full, thriving life. That you want to use us as change agents to bring that life to the world around us. And so when we're looking at this today, while in one sense it's foreign, it's ancient, we're not Israelites, there's another sense that we can still see the principles that emerge. And I pray that we will take those to heart that we will realize that what you've decided to do to bring change to the world is you change individuals to live changed lives, to change the environment uh, of others that live in that same space so that maybe they come to life in you and they be changed so that they can bring more change to the world. I pray it's just that incremental kind of aggregate vision, grassroots, that we take ownership of so that when we're at Extapa or Starbucks or Grateful Bread or in town or at the light or whatever, we're trying to think, how would Jesus have me live in this space to bring his heart to bear in this world? Help us, Jesus, to do that. Remind us of that. Show us yourself in great ways and your good and perfect name. Amen. So the project of Deuteronomy, uh, it is not religious formation, believe it or not. In a lot of ways, I'd say the religious formation element has happened a little bit more in Exodus, certainly in Leviticus. What Deuteronomy is about is nation building. And that's the big thing I've been trying to say. And in particular, I really firmly believe that the idea is that this kind of new promised land is New Eden. Just as there was an Eden designed to bring flourishing to the world, and Adam and Eve blew it, and they rebelled, and from that there was curse— now God is rebooting Eden 2.0. He's got a people to put in this garden space called, you know, their promised land. And they're supposed to live in a blessed way so that they can go and affect change throughout the world. We saw that back in chapter 4. That literally he says, I want to see you be wise and intelligent and show the uncommonness of your God in such a way that you flourish. And that flourishing is so compelling. The nations around you, they want what you have. And in that sense, then, we're going to overturn the curse from Eden with a new blessing and a new Eden if you do it the right way. So that's the framework. That's the intention behind this whole work of Deuteronomy. And God is doing it with this, this small pocket of people that started with this guy Abraham and now has grown into a pretty substantial population. And he's taken them out of Egypt, and he's moving them toward this space. But it's been a long 40 years right? It's been a rotten road trip, a tough detour, lots of rebellion, lots of folly, lots of complaining, lots of things to kind of get their butt kicked by God through that journey, but now they're finally getting to the end. And as they're getting to the end, and Moses is thinking about his very quickly coming demise, weeks away, in fact, at this point, he wants to start with the first thing in your notes. He wants to set the tone for their success. He knows he can't coach it going forward. 
It's going to be the last will and testament, in essence, that he's going to bring. So he wants to make sure that they really get it. Now, as we go into this, I need to stop us for a minute. This is kind of that scholastic side a little bit. But I think it's super critical. If you're going to understand what's going on in Deuteronomy 27 to 30, you have to know this bit. Because here's what happens. We tend to bring our own presupposition at times to bear on reading the Bible. And in particular, when we go into the Hebrew scriptures, we tend to forget that uh, there's a way to understand it in their world that may be different than the way we want to overread things in our world. So here's the biggest thing I want to see if I can help us understand. And that is that the nation, and just track with me for a second, the nation of Israel, the way God is handling them, is it is a nation, and I'm going to use our vernacular for this, it is a nation that God treats as saved. He treats them as saved. So when we read about things like cursing or wrath or judgment, and it's set against things like blessing or rewards or acquittal, uh, he's addressing them in, in a context where he's not like, those negatives are about you losing your salvation, or those negatives are because you're not a saved nation. No, the presupposition that God is bringing to the context of their lives is this is a chosen and elect nation. These are my people. We are in a relationship. So in light of that, when you see this idea of blessing and cursing, in our mindset, we tend to see that as like heaven and hell. We see that as saved or unsaved, believing or disbelieving. But in their world, the assumption and the understanding that I think God is communicating to them and their understanding from God is that, no, we're God's kids. We're his people. We are chosen in him. He has set his love on us, and as he sets his love on us, that love is unamendable. Therefore, when we see the cursing and blessing of Deuteronomy, we need to see that in the context of how God is dealing with a population that is in relationship with him, not how God is executing them out of a relationship with him. No, it's how he's growing them and grooming them and shaping them and honing them along the way. So again, I, I, I just say that because it'd be really easy to go, oh, so as all these curses maybe come upon Israel, that means they're not saved or they weren't saved or they lost their salvation or whatever. That's not the framework. It's just not. Even the idea of like, and they die and they went to hell versus they die and went to heaven. That's not in their framework, right? A lot of that speak is even a little bit nebulous to the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, if you have a Bible app, I would encourage you, as you're listening to me this morning, you could pull up your Bible app and type in the word hell and do a search, and you'll never come across that word in the entire Hebrew scripture. And there's a reason for that. Because the nation's like, we're saved. We're with God. We're his kids. This notion of being estranged from God in an eternal sense would just be super foreign to them. So I say all of that so we get our framework here that this is God dealing with people that are his, and then he's warning them I can either bless you or curse you in the scope of that relationship based on these conditions. So let me see if I can unpack this a little bit more. And it's an idea of a covenant, right? Because the Bible speaks of covenants. And if you're not familiar with this word, it's basically an agreement of love or loyalty between two parties. That's a foundational thing. So you think about your marriage covenant. It's agreement. You both said on a particular day, I will do this, and I will do this, and I won't do that, and I won't do that, and you agreed. And that's a covenant. Yours was love and loyalty. Some covenants are just loyalty, like it's a contract. 
some maybe love but doesn't have a contract but you get the idea here now here's what's important about this there's two critical covenants in the hebrew context of things the first is the abrahamic covenant and that was of their position it was their position. Here is how God sees our people. And in that context, it was unbreakable. And here's why. And I think this is kind of a cool story. You go back to when God comes to Abraham. Paul says God preached the gospel to Abraham way back in the day saying, all your descendants will be blessed. And the world, the nations will be blessed because of your descendants. Now you go back to that moment in time where that agreement was made. Here's the crazy part. I said it's an agreement between two parties. But in that first agreement, one of the parties was asleep. Abraham was asleep. So God takes these animals and he splits them in half, three of them. So they're now like these carcasses, like two by two by two. And then he takes this torch and this smoking pot and God walks between these animals as Abraham's asleep and God swears, may death come to me if I violate my loyalty and love to you. Abraham does not wake up and go, and ditto. No, Abraham's just asleep. It is the supreme display of the saving grace of God apart from what Abraham does. Earlier, Abraham believes God, but when the covenant is made, he's asleep, and God puts the whole covenant on his shoulders, and the Bible says this is an eternal covenant. And so the promise that God is making is, your people are going to always be my people, Right? And they're always going to be in relationship to me. They may be smart, they may be dumb, they may rebel, they may be godly, whatever, but they're my people because I've set my love on them. I've chosen them as a chosen elect nation. That's the idea. But then Moses comes along, and that's another covenant. And in that covenant, it's more of function. And in that covenant, there is agreement. God says this, the people say this, the people say yes, God says yes, God says no, people say no. And they come into this agreement. And that one is about God saying, since you're my kids, the quality of your life or the hardship of your life will be then related to this second covenant. The first one is eternal. The first one is what saves you. The second one is practical. It's what grows you, sanctifies you, and actually uses you to touch the nations as we want to do here. So I, I, I just want to give that because, again, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds of the blessing and cursing passages and think, oh, cursing means no longer saved. Blessing means saved. Here, no, blessing and cursing is all intertwined in their savedness, if you will, to their relationship to God. You're like, huh? Still? I get it. But don't worry. By the end, hopefully we'll understand a little bit more. But I just want to get that because it's easy to misunderstand some of this. The other thing I want to say really quick about this is when we read the blessings and the cursings, I want you to notice, and you can read them for yourself, they're all here and now. They're all temporal. They're all practical in Deuteronomy. There's no warnings of afterlife or promises of certain after. It's all like, hey man, if I bless you, life thrives. If I curse you, life withers. But it's in this world that he's addressing them because he's trying to make transformation in this world. That's the heart of Deuteronomy. All right, so with that then, it starts. It says, when you cross the Jordan River, and this is just maybe a few months away, this event that he's prescribing will happen in a few months. When you cross the Jordan River, and enter the land your God is giving to you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster, write the whole body of instruction on them when you cross the river to enter the land the Lord your God has given to you. When you cross the Jordan, set up these stones at Mount 
Ebal. It says, then build an altar to the Lord your God there using natural uncut stones. You must not shape the stones with an iron tool. Build the altar of uncut stones and use it to offer burnt offerings to the Lord your God. Also sacrifice peace offerings on it and celebrate by feasting there before the Lord your God. You must clearly write these instructions on the stones coated with plaster. On the same day, Moses also gave this charge to the people. When you cross the Jordan River, the tribes of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin must stand on Mount Gerizim and proclaim a blessing over the people. Then the tribes of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali must uh, go to Mount Ebal, and there they will proclaim a curse. Now, I'm sure as you were reading on the screen and you were listening along, you're like, man, that's amazing. I so get that. So vivid, so clear, so easy, right? Probably not. You're like, uh, there was a couple of mountains, some painted rocks, Levi jeans, a Reuben sandwich, a dude named Dan. You know, like, like, what's going on, right? Like, it's easy sometimes when we read this stuff in the Hebrew scripture particularly to just be like, blah, 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 looking for my memory verse of the day. But... I'm going to do us a favor, and I'm going to unpack that there is some amazing structure to what you just saw and read and heard aloud, all right? So we're going to reconstruct it here. We're going to do it with the first picture. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Here's what's crazy. Mount Ebal is a desolate rock. Mount Gerizim, rich soil, very fertile in the same valley. So literally, these two mounds, easily seen, side by side, come down into a valley. So here the people are going to come into this space, and immediately you're going to see a desolate rock and a flourishing rock. Very immersive. From that, you can actually see that these two represent things. Mount Ebal is more about the cursed and decaying things. Mount Gerizim is about the blessed and flourishing things. So if you ever wanted to immerse your classroom in an environment, this is the right environment. It's undeniable. It's just incredible the way God's like, we're going to leverage the entire space to do this. What do you want out of life? This or this? Next, it says that they are to uh, have these large stones covered in white plaster, and they're to be set at the base of Mount Ebal, the cursed and decaying space. And it's crazy when it says this, it says they need to be like really detailed. And the detail there isn't just like have good penmanship. It's actually saying make sure everybody fully gets this. Scribes and scholars are a little divided on this. It may be saying that they were to put commentary behind all of these things. Or maybe that they had to put it in multiple languages to make sure everybody didn't miss it. Either way, what this is, is like first edition Torah right here. This is a publishing party. Right? We're rolling out the book for the first time. Before it's on rolled up parchment and big scrolls, it's going to be on these giant slabs that nobody can miss. And it's at the Mount of Cursing so that you remember, oh yeah, if we violate this, we end up like that. We don't want to be that. We like that fertile mountain over there. We don't like this dead, sad, rocky, barren thing here. And so we know that's in the scene. The next God says, put an altar in the middle of it all. But this altar is critical. You can't carve the stones you just find crude, clumsy rock for sacrifice and offering and celebration to God. And the reason he doesn't want them cutting the stones is what? He's already told them, y'all are going to want to make graven images, whether of me or other gods, and we're just going to stay away from that. Anything that's an altar to me, I don't want you carving it into a thing. Now, this one's going to be raw. 
super raw. So you got that down in the middle. But the next, Moses said, I want you to put the tribes on each side. Six go over here, six go over there. The discolored one there is the Levites. They're on one of these hills as well. But they're there, and you see now the juxtaposition. Half the nation here, half the nation there. The decision is blessing and cursing, life and death, flourishing and decay. The nation is just, again, dumped into the center of this picture to just anchor everything. Now, we see not so much in the book of Deuteronomy, but we see in this other set of works that the Jewish population has put together, they have like this, the Mishnah, and there's some other things as well. Um, They kind of unpack the scene a little bit more, and they let us know that the priests and the judges, they came to surround the altar down in the middle of the valley, and then they took the Ark of the Covenant, and they carried it between the two mountains. And as they carried it between the two, they would come to the one and they would make a declaration and everybody would say amen. And they would come back over to the other one and make a declaration and everybody would say amen. And it would go back and forth and back and forth. So that the entire population was just getting this thing. This is going to be the place where we drive our anchors deep. So if I modernize this, this is the Jewish equivalent of like an epic rap battle. Right? Or if you ever go to a Seahawks game, what do they do? Seahawks, Seahawks. Less filling, tastes great, whatever your thing is. Like, that's what this is. And so can you imagine just tens of thousands of voices? Boom, 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 boom. Reminding this is what God is calling to. It's the difference between life and death, flourishing and decay. But what I mean by furnishing decay or cursing and blessing is really a tale of two t-shirts. When you pull it all down, it's two t-shirts. God is saying you can either choose life sucks and then you die, or life is good, which is a great t-shirt. Because again, in the context of Deuteronomy, that's the difference. Cursing is about in your real life, it will get ugly fast. Or in your real life. It'll be blessed and good, and it's going to be onward and upward if you lean into what God has for you. And so as the rest of chapter 27 begins to unfold, you have the scene. It's all about these themes. And in verse 14, it says, the Levites will shout to all of the people, and he gives like a listing of 12 basic moral principles. Now, again, kind of a little bit of a thing, the difference between Deuteronomy and, and, you know, kind of the Talmud or Mishnah. These are the Jewish traditions. The Mishnah is thick. The Talmud is ginormous. It's the handed-down tradition of Jewish history for 3,000 years. It's amazing. It's an immense thing. But in those works, they actually say that, again, both positive and negative is being done this day. So they would come over, and they would do the curses, and then they'd come over and do the same thing in a blessed variation, and then they would do these 12 things back and forth. In Deuteronomy, we only have the curses. We're not shown the flip of it. But we could certainly assume how this would work. And so they go through these 12 kind of like creedal concepts. First, they would take the ark over to Mount Ebal, to the cursed rock, and they would say, Cursed is anyone who carves or casts an idol and secretly sets it up. Secrecy is a lot of these things as well in this whole list. Says these idols, the work of craftsmen, are detestable to the Lord. And all the people will reply... Amen. Look at you guys. You're ready to be Hebrews in the ancient Near East, all right? 
And a lot of these things are kind of just split right down the middle. And it's to assume, too, that they would say, and then blessed is the person that doesn't carve these things, because, again, it's an abomination to the Lord, so it's back and forth. So then he says, cursed is anyone who detests their father or mother. And all the people will say, cursed is anyone who steals property from a neighbor by moving the boundary markers. And all the people say, cursed is anyone who leads a blind person astray on the road. And all the people will say, and what a jerk, too. Cursed is anyone who denies justice to foreigners or orphans or widows, and all the people will say. All right, so this list seems really, really normal and familiar, but then it goes a little weird. It says, Cursed is anyone who has sexual relations with one of his father's wives, for he's violated his father, and all the people said. Happy, right? So let's be honest here. And I kind of read this and I go, Why does it say, Cursed is the father who has more than one wife? It doesn't say that. It's kind of a weird one, a little bit more of a niche market. But then it gets, I'm just reading the Bible, all right? Cursed is anyone who has sexual intercourse with an animal. And all the people said, it seems like a real small population that that's addressing right there to me. Like, I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, I agree, man. Cursed is the person that dates their pets. I'm 100% with you, but it seems like about the 12 big ideas you could pitch. All right, it is what it is. But we fast forward to the end, all right? Finally, verse 26, Cursed is anyone who does not affirm and obey the terms of these instructions. And then all the people said, Amen. You get the idea that there is this idea of declaration and ratification. Declaration, ratification. And it's all the people owning their responsibility. And so all of this is just this display of fidelity and reminding of the model of blessing and cursing. So then from that, they move into what we would call kind of uh, like um, a treaty model. Part of the thing we sometimes don't real about, uh, realize about a covenant is that they were super common in the region as treaties. And when we go now into chapter 28, after everybody's made these de declarations, they're going to hear the conditions, the fine print, if you will, of the contract, and it really is a treaty. And when we read this, we can compare it against other treaties in the region that were before the time of Moses, before the time of the, uh, you know, kind of the movement from Egypt to the Promised Land. This list is very familiar. Right? So in this sense, Moses is able to borrow from his environment. They're all breathing the same treaty air, if you will, in that sense. But the difference between this treaty and all other treaties is the other ones were between nations and other nations. So, hey, we're going to be partners, and yet if you violate this, we'll do this, you'll do that, we'll war, you'll war, it'll be like that. This is a unique one because it's the first time it's a treaty between the nation of God and the God of the nation. That makes it different. And that's what, how this is shaping up. And so what it's saying is God's going, you're my people, you're saved, you're my kids, I've set my love on you. So if you fulfill the terms of the treaty, I will bless you. If you violate the terms of the treaty, well, it's going to be chaos and I will curse you. And so it starts with the positives, 14 verses of positive. I won't read all of them, but you're going to see the idea of the flourishing that's here. It's the path to blessing. God outlines this, here's how you're going to be blessed by me. He says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. He says, your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops, blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks, blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. He says, the Lord will give you property in the land that he swore to your fathers, the ancestors, to bless you with many children, numerous livestock, abundant crops, He'll send rain at the proper time for rich treasury in the heavens. will bless you with all the work that you do. 
You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from any of them. If you listen to these commands the Lord your God is giving you today, and if you carefully obey them, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will always be on top and never the bottom. But make sure you keep these commands. Don't go down the path of worshiping false gods. If I was to take all of that and put it into one sentence, I would say it's this. Life is better with Yahweh, all right? It's really just kind of our church's motto statement. That's what it's saying, right? And notice, all very practical, all very tangible, all very earthly. You're going to have food, family, fortification, fortune, and fame. And so this is the way the Israelite mind works. All the way up to the time of Jesus. If we do what God wants us to do, we obey the Torah, then we will be blessed. Monetarily, practically, militarily, you name it, we'll be blessed for it. Which we'll get into in a minute, why this was so tricky as Jesus rolls in. But for now, what you got to know is that when Jesus does roll in, he says some stuff that really angers religion because he's going to say the opposite of what Deuteronomy 28 seems to be saying. They're going, hey, if we do all the right stuff, life is sweet. Life is good. Life is a cakewalk. But then Jesus gives this upside-down blessing in the Gospel of Luke. So then Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, God blesses you when you're poor for the kingdom of God is yours. And God blesses you if you're hungry now because then you're going to be satisfied. And God blesses those who weep now for in due time they will laugh and then God blesses those who are hated and excluded and mocked and cursed as evil because they believe in the Son of Man. He says, when that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy for great is your reward in heaven. It's weird because they'd say, if all of that stuff happens to you, you're cursed of God. And now Jesus is like, well, actually... It may be completely inverted. You just don't see it. He goes, but on the flip, what sorrow awaits you who are rich, for now you have your happiness. And what sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. Sorrow awaits those who laugh now, because your laugh is going to be turning into mourning and sorrow. And then, man, what sorrow awaits those who are praised by the crowds, for the ancestors also praised false prophets. And when he says praised by the crowds, we tend to read that sometimes and go, oh, praised by the disbelieving world. No, his point is being praised by religion. <laughs> that's his problem. That's his context. That's the group that people are going to want the praise of, the religious brokers of the day. He's like, if you're getting the praise from religion, yeah, you might be missing out. See, the kingdom of Jesus inverts so much of Deuteronomy 28 and he's saying, against, saying what he says against that backdrop. So one of the things you always want to do when you're reading Jesus is go he's saying stuff against assumptions that they had or belief systems that he's challenging. And so in the same way he does this in Luke 6 to challenge some of the thought process behind Deuteronomy 28 and we'll again unpack that in just a minute. But his point is pretty simple. Uh if you're cursed in the world, you might have gain, and if you're praised and blessed in the world, you might suffer loss, and I love it because it just basically challenges both mosaic and, frankly, American conventions at times. It's like he's always disrupting. He's the ultimate disruptor. I love it. Well, that's in Luke, thousand years down the road. Let's jump back to Deuteronomy, where we get the warning this time. We get the warning of the road to ruin. Now, what's weird here is it starts in verse 15, and it is four times longer than the blessing section. So the blessing section was 14 verses. This is 54 verses. I'm not going to read them all, trust me. But you get the sense like God's wanting to really make sure, like, you guys know what you're in for if you're stupid, right? 
You know what you're gonna get if you do dumb stuff. It's awful. I'm gonna let you know a laundry list of things. He says, but if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come over you and overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and crops will be cursed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be cursed. So it just duplicates the former things. And then from there, it gives a list. And I encourage you, if you want to be really sad laden in your heart, read the list, right? You take the stories you hear about like refugees fleeing a war-torn space or migrants trying to get from uh, an impoverished place to something else, and you hear the stories about sexual assault, abuse, misuse, neglect, murder, mayhem, you name it. And, and that's exactly the listing that God gives here. It gets so dark, it finally says, and mothers will eat their own children out of their starvation. Like, it's a super, like, just sobering warning, right? So remember when he said, you will be strong and strong over those around you, and you will not borrow, but you will lend, and you will be the head and not the tail? Well, now it just flips it. So the foreigners living among you will become stronger and stronger and you will become weaker and weaker. They will lend money to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head and you will be the tail. If you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and obey the commands and decrees that he's given to you, all these curses will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. So there's no sense of like, well, what's he getting at here? Like the clarity is radical, right? But then there's another little layer that you gotta bring up. And the layer is what actual obedience is. And now this becomes more pertinent to us. Right? Buried in the midst of the curses, it says in verse 46, these horrors will serve as a sign and warning among you and your descendants forever. If you do not serve the Lord your God with joy and enthusiasm for the abundant benefits you have received. See, here's why this is important. It's not enough to say obedience is all about right action. Now, what God gets to is obedience is about disposition, too. It's about heart. Now, in phase one, which is most of the history of Israel, uh, they thoroughly violated Deuteronomy 28. Like, that was their superpower, was violating Deuteronomy 28. So they had many occasions of punked, beat down, a mess. Then they repent, come back, punk, beat down, mess, come back. There was like that kind of cycle for sure. But then you get to the second phase of it, and that's when Jesus rolls in. So here's what you have to understand about then the context of life as Jesus hits the scene. So about 160 years before he kind of starts doing his jam, uh, the people of Israel went, we have been dumb for a long time. And we're finally back in the land. We're being kind of dumb again. We need to get right, because now the Greeks are breathing down our neck, taking control of our space. Eventually, the Romans are going to do that too. So they say, we need to be godly. We need to get back to Deuteronomy 28. We need to obey the letter of the law. We need to make sure that those 613 kind of instructions of Moses are deeply a part of our psyche so that God will bless us and raise us up and we'll conquer our enemies and we'll have tons of money and our kids will grow strong and big and our crops will be perfect. And so they get really serious really serious about honoring Deuteronomy 28. And, and, and that's what gives birth to this giant fat book right here. The Mishnah is the religious parties saying, man, we need to come up with all sorts of explanation 
for that work of Moses because if we're going to best our enemies and become the greatest nation on earth, we need to be strong and powerful, and the route to that is the blessing of Deuteronomy 28. So they have this whole thing, and it's huge. I mean, literally, it's just catalog upon catalog of here's how you do all of these different mosaic things. And that's not showing that they're, like, being sinful. They're actually attempting in their mind to try to be righteous as they see it. What's super fascinating to me is that by the time that Jesus is there, they're no longer worshiping all the false gods that they did in the Old Testament. They're not violating all the codes of Moses. They've doubled down on that and a bunch more stuff. And then Jesus says, and of all the generations, you're the worst. Is that not weird? It's super weird. Of all the generations, you're the worst. And you go, Jesus, why would you say that? There's this little thing he says in the Gospel of Matthew where he says, because here's the bottom line. You honor me with your mouths, but your hearts, your hearts are far from me. That's a quote that he's bringing out of the prophets that were speaking on behalf of God. So it's like, you, you religious leaders, you're, you're anchored in all the details, but you have no passion for God, no heart for God, no tenderness for God at all. And Man, that is the problem. I think what he's getting at is that heartless license, which is much of the history of Israel, is bad, but heartless legalism may in fact be worse. And that's the challenge. Because we tend to think, well, if I'm more legalistic, that means I'm more godly. Man, there is plenty of legalism to go around in the stories of Jesus and it led to the decay and to the ruin because so often extremes tend to lead to toxicity and that's kind of where they went. See, here's what God seeks of our obedience and our repentance. When it comes to our obedience, we see it in Micah 6, 8. He says, oh people, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you. Yes, to do what is right. But boy, to do that as you love mercy and you walk humbly with your God. See, the religion of Jesus' day they were doing what was right with no mercy and nothing but pride in relationship to their God. So, so that was the damaged goods of their activity. Also, though, when it comes to our failures, and we're all going to have failures, we see something with David, big failure in his life, murderer, adulterer, all these things just piled on one another, liar, bad father. And he says to God, uh, you don't desire sacrifices. You don't, you don't desire me to do the whole code of Moses right now from my failure here. He goes, I'd offer you one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. See, that's always, it's always the heart again. God's looking at that space more than anything else. And so it's not about our perfection, but it certainly is about our humility and dependency on him. And so Deuteronomy 28, at the center of it is, the heart. Yes, blessings and cursings. The heart is where God is looking. And so, chapter then 29 wraps up the uh, formation of this treaty between God and Israel. And it says, These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites when they were led to the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant he made with them at Mount Sinai. So there's just some moving parts there. It says, therefore, obey the terms of this covenant so that you will prosper in everything you do. By entering into the covenant today, he will establish you as his people and confirm that he is your God, just as he promised you, as he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's like, hey, you're saved. I promised that back in the past. Now we're going to kind of do this the way I want us to do it and avoid the bad stuff. 
So you have the inauguration that has been established, the treaty that's been detailed, the covenant that has been declared. And then just a few months in Joshua 8, you see they do this thing on a particular day. But here's the other thing that's going to be true. Israel will radically and repeatedly violate the treaty. God knows it. Moses knows it. The people know it. They all know it. Foolishness, recklessness, and sin is coming. Thus, the section ends with a reality check. It says this, in the future, when you experience all these blessings and curses, they're both coming, that I have listed for you, and when you are living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, take to heart all these instructions. So, no sooner, they're not even in the land yet, and he tells them, and you're gonna lose it. You're gonna lose it. This is what's in your heart. Right? But when that happens, understand that when you go from blessing to cursing, the cursing isn't there because God just loves to be punitive. Like, he just has the best day wiping you out. He says, no, God is doing this to be restorative. In other words, God's judgment, as he's executing it toward Israel, right, is a mechanism to move them to repentance and health again. And so we see this first with this discussion about the restorative judgment of God. He says, at the time, you and your children will return to the Lord your God if you obey with all your heart and all your soul all the commands I have given you today. Then the Lord your God will restore you to your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he scattered you. Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord will gather you from there and bring you back again. So it's just letting you know, like, man, I, you're my kids. Yes, I might do this stuff, but it's to get your attention and restore you back to me. And it's not just external conditions, it's also internal transformation. You see the restorative care of God. It says the Lord will change your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart, your soul, and you may live. The Lord your God will uh, in, inflict all of these curses on your enemies instead of you and all those who hate you and persecute you. Then you will again obey the Lord and keep the commands that I'm giving to you today. And so again, he's just saying, listen, you're not written off. Right? You're not written off. You're never written off because you're my kids. But then what I also love about this is that what he expects of them, he promises to also produce in them. And that's kind of why he says, I'm going to put this heart in you. We saw that in our reading today. And then last, you have the restorative encouragement of God. This command I give you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It's not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask, must we go to heaven and bring it down so we can hear and obey? He says, no, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your hearts so that you can obey. He says, it's not too overwhelming. It's not impossible. And here's the thing I believe is true to that. God is not expecting our perfection. Far from it. I think if we're just humble and needy and broken and, and, and just striving as best as we can in our very juvenile ways. God's like, that's what I'm looking for. It's the, the heart behind it, right? And so what you see here is God's like, you know what? I take you to the woodshed sometimes because I love you. I take you to the woodshed sometimes because I want to restore you. But you know what is better than going to the woodshed in the love of God? Not doing dumb stuff to end up in the woodshed with God, Right? And that's also kind of the element here. Just don't do the dumb stuff. This is why it closes with choose flourishing. Moses says, today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessing and cursing. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make the choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. All of that to say, choose life. 
Make the choice for life. And you know what? This is still in play for us today. It just is. Real quick here. As a church, we say life is better with Jesus. And actually, our motto is we want to be helping people really believe that life is better with Jesus. And this idea comes out of the Gospel of John over 50 times. He says, I'm life, I'm abundant life, true life, eternal life. I came to give you this life, right? And he's saying that against the backdrop of Deuteronomy. This is their understanding of life. He's like, I came to give you that kind of life. And repeatedly, he's pushing that issue. But the key to that life that Jesus offers is doing things in his way. Seeing that he is the path to life, the door to life, and then by following him as he calls us to do things, that brings life to us and life to those around us. We're still meant to be a culture to change culture, a nation to bless nations, because we inhabit wisdom and intelligence and an uncommon God who calls us to uncommon things. And when you think about how Jesus calls us to uncommon things, it's upside down and backwards. You know me. Look at the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, Fruit of the Spirit, definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Those four things are the ways that Jesus calls us to live our life, and from that, life is better for us and better for those around us. And so just as Moses said, choose flourishing, Paul says, choose flourishing still. He says, still choose it. He says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. You will reap what you sow. That's all Moses is saying. You're going to reap what you sow. Paul says it's still true for us as followers of Jesus. We're going to reap what we sow. We can reap to blessing or we can reap to the woodshed. But why wouldn't we want to reap to flourishing over decay? And when he says this in Galatians, and just before this in chapter 6, he's talking about the difference between selfless and selfish. The selfishness and selflessness. Right? You see somebody that's hurting, broken, caught in some sin. You who are gentle come alongside and help them in a spirit of gentleness, and you fulfill the law of Christ. Not the law of Moses, the law of Christ. But if we become harsh and critical and condescending and we're judging our fellow Christians more than coming alongside gently, he's like, well, then you're, you're, you're sowing to decay. You're not sowing to flourishing. And then just before that, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of self-indulgence and self-gratification. All of it comes back to how we relate to one another. So much how we embody this heart of Jesus' blessing for the world. And so from this, I close with the half-brother of Jesus, James, showing us how to relate in wisdom. He says, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living honorable lives, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. He says, the wisdom that's from above is first pure, but also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others, is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers, not just peacekeepers, peace creators, will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Those are marching orders. And so where does Deuteronomy meet real life real fast? Number one, asking the question, am I focused on a life that seeks to bring selfless flourishing to my culture or perpetuate self-interested decay? Do I genuinely believe that Jesus' way of doing things enriches all of life? And then third, how can, I, uh, how can I plan to be a sower of peacemaking in this world in the next week? How can I be that source of change? Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, again, we continue to try to crush much into little time. But I actually think it's incredibly important for us today, especially as we think what our mission is, is it's not to eject from this world and just get to heaven. No, it's to change this world in your name because that's your mission and goal. You want heaven and earth to touch. You tell us to pray that way. 
that your kingdom would come here as it is where you are at now. And I pray that we would be really faithful to that, that we'd be willing to put ourselves aside for the sake of you, that we will realize that your blessings may be seen as cursing in the world, but you know what? That's the path to eternal joy in you. There may be some in this room today or some watching online where you're not a Christian, but you go, I want to become a Christian today. Awesome. That's just a prayer for you where you say, Jesus, I see. I'm in cursed space. I want to be in blessed space. I'm I'm doing my thing. I want to do your thing. I've set myself up on my own throne of life, and I want you to take over and, and take over my life. You make that your prayer where you say, I've sinned against you. I see you've rescued me. I want to follow you. You make that your prayer. He hears you, changes you, steps into your world, starts to grow you as a person to bring flourishing and blessing. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your patience toward us. And we thank you that you look most at the heart. So purify our hearts, guide our hearts, shape our hearts into you. We love you, Jesus, and thank you in your name. Amen.